tonight, uh, we've got you know one more one more message before we get to the panel, and you know because this series is about uh, relationships, I, I I couldn't help but think today. On the number of weddings that I've been to in the last little while, I was, I was doing some calculating today, um, and, and, and just, just in my 20s alone, I realized I've attended over 27 weddings. Uh, I've actually, I was at a wedding last Saturday. And um, we're going to talk tonight about marriage one more time, but we're actually not going to focus so much about, you know, kind of your marriage, but God's marriage. Um, you know, just want you to imagine for a minute you're trying to sum up uh, the story of the whole Bible in one word. Uh, just curious what one word you might choose. Anyone got anything? Love? Okay. Yeah, love. Any other thoughts, suggestions? Grace. Grace? Okay. Yeah. Saving? Saving? Yeah. All good. All true. Faithfulness? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all, all, all great ways to summarize the Bible. But here's one word that I would propose. Maybe it's not a word you've thought of before. I would actually propose the word marriage. The story of the Bible can be summed up as the story of a marriage. Uh, The Bible begins and ends with a wedding. And in between, you get the very tempestuous kind of love story between God's love uh, for his stubborn people and and his stubborn people. (laughs) And so you could say that the Bible is the best-selling romance novel in the history of the world. So in this series, we've been looking at human marriage, but tonight we're going to wrap up by looking at the great marriage, the wedding that's at the heart of all biblical history, the heart of all human history, and we're going to read about it in the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, chapters 19 and 21. And just as I'm reading this, just kind of be on the lookout for words like wedding or bride. That kind of tells you that it's latching onto our theme tonight. So I'm going to read from chapter 21 first, just a couple of verses. Revelation 21, 1 through 4. If you've got a Bible, you can pull it out, follow along. Verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And now I'm going to go back two chapters, and I'm just going to read three verses from chapter 19. So this is chapter 19, verses 6 through 8. It says, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. So there you go. There's what we're going to be looking at tonight. So, some time ago. Um, I remember I was reading through a book. It was actually a book about heaven, uh, since this is kind of a, a heaven chapter. And this is, in this book called Heaven, there's a little story I remember reading, and it was about this, this woman named Florence Chadwick, and she was the, the first woman to ever swim the English Channel both ways. Well, in 1952, uh, Florence Chadwick, she attempted to be the first woman to swim the Catalina Channel, uh, any, any Californians in the room? Any California transplants? Okay, we've actually got a lot. You know, I'm, I'm kind of a California transplant born in Oakland. 
I'll have you know. Anyway, uh, there's a little little channel off the coast of California between uh, California and, and this island, and it's 26 miles, 26 miles of swimming. And so she tries to swim the, this 26 miles, and that day the weather is so chilly and so foggy and so cold that she could barely even see like the boats that were kind of right beside her accompanying her, you know, for safety's sake, as she's crossing the channel. Well, finally, after 15 hours of swimming, that's a lot of swimming, she asked to be taken out of the water. But her mother and the boat beside her encouraged her to keep going because she was so close enough to make it. Only after she'd been pulled out of the water did she realize that she'd actually given up just a half mile away from shore. And the next day at a news conference, she said, all I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. Pretty interesting. You know, we just read about what you might call the wedding at the end of the world. And of course, you know, it's the end of the world because it's the book of Revelation, right? Uh, but, but you need to know something about this wedding at the end of the world. Because if you don't, you might not see the shore. In other words, if you're a believer in Jesus tonight, I just want you to know that the, the end of your story is actually the beginning. <laughs> the end of your earthly story ends in an explosion of unspeakable joy. It ends falling into the arms of Jesus, who is the ultimate spouse, whose love for you makes all other loves seem cheap. But here's the thing, like the fog of war of this world may keep you from seeing the hope that's ahead of you, and you might be tempted to give up running the race. So tonight, we're going to look at the wedding at the end of the world. And in fact, if you're a believer, it actually is your wedding at the end of the world. And if you get this, it makes all the difference in the world. And tonight, we're just going to look at three ways that this wedding matters. Uh, they have to do with three things, sin, shame, and separation. Sin, shame, separation. One, two, three. Okay, so first of all, you may know about Revelation. Revelation is this vision. It's given to a guy named John. Uh, most people think he's the guy who wrote the Gospel of John. And it's about the end of the world. <laughs> and in chapter 21, John says that in his vision, he saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Now, quick sidebar. Uh, you might have noticed, you might actually be wondering, why on earth is this bride like a bunch of bricks and mortar? Like, why is the bride described as a city? Uh, and you're maybe thinking, that's a little weird. Um, just remember, Revelation is a symbolic book. And if you read carefully, you'll see the city isn't just a city, but it's also a symbol for the people of God. But what's important here is to notice the way that the bride's described. So it says here that she's beautifully dressed for her husband, or chapter 19. It says that fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Um, you know, over the years, I mentioned those 27 weddings. I've actually gotten to be a groomsman in a couple of those. And uh, you know one of the things that I've noticed about, about weddings? Uh, maybe you've noticed this too. I've noticed that the, the, the women, the bridesmaids, they always show up before the men, before the groomsmen. Uh, you know, anyone have any idea, you know, kind of why that might be? You know, maybe any, any women among us might have some, some insight tonight as to this very strange phenomenon. Well, you know, my guess, I might be wrong. You know, ladies, you can correct me later. But I've noticed that the guys, all they have to do to get ready for a wedding you know, the groomsmen just like, you know, they put on some slacks, you know, a nice shirt, maybe some suspenders or a belt, and then a little boutonniere right there. You know, it usually takes them like five minutes to figure out the boutonnieres, the worst part. 
But, you know, it's, it's like maybe 10 minutes tops, right? But if you're a bridesmaid, you know, you have to do. You have to put on makeup and mascara. You've got to do your nails. You've got to fix your hair. And especially if you're the bride, then you've got like several hours more of preparation to do in order to get ready for the wedding. Because on her wedding day, a bride is dressed more beautifully than perhaps she's ever been. But in Revelation, what we just looked at, these clothes aren't just about what you wear on the outside. They're about what you are on the inside. So the picture here is of a purified, spotless child of God, never again to be stained with sin. Uh, Years ago, I had a friend. I remember talking to this guy one time. And I just remember asking him the question, like, hey, like, what are you most looking forward to about heaven? And without even missing a beat, he just said, no more sin. No more sin. And on this wedding day, at the end of the world, the same will be true of you. Uh, One of the Bible's favorite metaphors that kind of describes conversion uh, is the metaphor of putting on clothes. So every morning when you get dressed, you can just think, you know what? Uh, It's just really good being a Christian today. Because, you know, I'm, you know, a reminder of what this, this, this metaphor is all about. So, for example, let me just give you a verse for that. Just if you go to the book of Ephesians, there's this couple of verses here in chapter 4. And it says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self. And then a little later it says, you're, you're supposed to put on the new self, which is created to be like God. So, put on and put off is the language of getting dressed. Uh, it's a metaphor to show how God, when he cleanses you inwardly, um, you, you therefore look clean outwardly. Uh, your insides match your outsides. So when John sees you and me dressed in white at the wedding at the end of the world, what he's saying is he's saying no more sin. There is no more sin. On the great wedding day when God marries his people, his bride will be completely holy and completely spotless. And by the way, she'll also be completely united. It's been said that Jesus isn't coming back for a harem. He's coming back for a bride. The one united body of Christ. But now, how does this work? Uh, Look look a little bit more carefully at chapter 19. So notice in verse 7, it says the bride made herself ready. Now, of course, you know, what bride wouldn't do this? You know, in all the weddings I've been to, I don't know about you, I've never, ever been to a wedding where the bride forgot to put on her makeup or do her hair or wear a wedding dress. Every single wedding I've ever been to, the bride was wearing a wedding dress. And in the same way, every Christian ought to be excited to passionately pursue holiness in anticipation for the day when we will meet the Lord. But but just notice here for a minute that whereas you've got verse 7, which says the bride has made herself ready. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 says fine linen was given her to wear. Kind of interesting. Almost seems a little paradoxical, doesn't it? But same kind of thing with the way that like our faith and our good works fit together. Maybe you've kind of reflected on this, this how this kind of fits together theologically. You know, we can only do good works through God gracing us with the gift of faith. So the bride makes herself beautiful with a beauty that God gives her, as any husband would. You know, just think, step back for a minute and just, you know, think again about kind of the big picture, the big story of Scripture. So often, we think of salvation as being forgiven our debts, you know, being set free from sin, being ransomed from death. 
All of those things are true. All those things are in there. But I would suggest that perhaps the, the best way that you actually can think about all of those benefits of salvation is actually as a marriage between Christ and his people. Because it's actually through marriage that all the other benefits come. And I want to explain how this works uh, by, by referencing just a great little passage from uh, a guy maybe you've heard of before, a guy named Martin Luther. He was a famous Christian reformer. And I've, I've kind of just edited this just a little bit just to kind of make the language a bit more readable. But listen to this and listen to the way that he says that it's all about marriage. So he says, faith unites us with Christ, just like a bride is united to her bridegroom. By this mystery, Christ and the believer become one flesh. And if they are one flesh and are truly married, then it follows that they share everything, the good as well as the evil. That means the believer can boast of and glory in whatever Christ has, as though it were their own. And whatever the believer has, Christ claims is his own. For example, Christ is full of grace, life, and salvation. The believer is full of sins, death, and damnation. Now let faith come between them, and sins, death, and damnation will belong to Christ, while grace, life, and salvation will belong to the believer. For if Christ is a bridegroom, he must take upon himself the things which belong to his bride and bestow upon her the things that belong to him. By the wedding ring of faith, he shares in the sins, death, and pains of hell, which are his brides. As a matter of fact, he makes them his own and acts as if they were his own and as if he himself had sinned. He suffered, died, and descended into hell that he might overcome them all. And then he concludes, he says, Who then can fully appreciate what this royal marriage means? Who can understand the riches of the glory of this grace? Here this rich and divine bridegroom Christ marries this poor wicked harlot, redeems her from all her evil, and adorns her with all his goodness. This is radical. This is radical. You know, let's say that I get married to someone and they have $40,000 of school debt. When we get married, all of my wife's debt becomes my debt. And, you know, suppose actually we get married and I'm a millionaire. Now, this is not true, but just let's suppose it is. That means that my wife is now a millionaire as well. Because we're married, all I have becomes hers. This is why Jesus, it's so significant that Jesus comes to us as the heavenly bridegroom. You know, look, chances are in the last, you know, week, maybe even the last 24 hours, maybe even the last 24 minutes, like you know that you've screwed up. You know, you gave in to anger, you told a lie, you looked at something online you weren't supposed to look at, and one way or another, all of us have fallen short. And if you're anything like me, it's just so easy to just let your sin define you. You know, like you sin and you're just like, man, I feel terrible and I am a sinner and I'm just always going to be this terrible, awful, horrible sinner person. And it's true. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But if Christ is the bridegroom, if we are his bride, then from now on, do you realize that that sin belongs to Jesus? His righteousness belongs to you. So, this is so practical. I mean, like, when the voice of the accuser condemns you, and when he tells you that you're fated to sin because of so many times you failed not to sin, then you can tell him he's got the wrong number. <laughs> That's not who you are anymore. 
The true you isn't the sinner who's constantly screwing up. The true you is the new you. The true you is the new you. And the new you is a holy, spotless child of God whose sin has been taken and paid for by Jesus. You don't have to fight for that identity. You actually get to fight from that identity. Does that make sense? Because Jesus is the bridegroom. And though it's true that we may still struggle with sin now and in our daily lives, one day at the wedding, at the end of the world, it'll be completely gone. No more sin. That's implication number one. But then implication number two, uh, not just no more sin, but actually, if this wedding is really real, it means no more striving. Uh, just, you know, think about human marriage for just a minute and just let's kind of reflect on that to sort of get at what Revelation is saying. So think about how in marriage, it's not the same as if two business people, like, make a deal. You know, so if two businesses make a deal, uh, what do they do? They sign a contract. Uh, and if either party breaks the contract, the deal is off, the relationship's over. That's kind of how business works. But, but when two spouses make a marriage, they make a covenant. And a covenant is permanent. It doesn't matter how many times each person hurts the other person, betrays the other person, lets the other person down. A covenant is a way of saying that I'm going to be by your side at the end of this thing, come hell or high water. Now, talk about a big difference. You know, if uh, any of you have ever been to the Point Defiance Zoo, maybe you've seen, like, the, you know, the, the peacock that roams around the zoo. And if you ever come up close to the peacock, it'll kind of puff out his chest and put out his feathers. He's trying to show off. You know, he's trying to attract females. If marriage were just a contract, you would constantly be playing the peacock in every single area of your life. You'd be trying to show off so that the other person stays interested in you. And if you don't perform well enough, well, boom, you know, they might bolt for a better partner. The contract would be broken. And so what does that mean? It means that you're always under pressure to perform. And this, by the way, this is why dating is so stressful, because you know, you know that the other person, even if you're like really into them, you know, well, they may not really be into you. <laughs> and you just can't really control whether or not they're going to bolt and just say, well, <laughs> you know, I'm not really into you anymore. See ya. <laughs> There's no security. It's super stressful. But if marriage is a covenant, then there's safety, there's security, because you know that even on your worst days when you've lost your job, you know, and you've lost your looks, or maybe you've even really deeply hurt and wounded your spouse, that other person is still going to be there when you wake up in the morning, and the morning after that, and the morning after that, and the morning after that. There is such a beautiful security in covenant marriage. That means that you can be yourself. You can let your guard down. You can actually be honest about your struggles because the two of you have promised that no matter what you might confess to them, no matter what you might say to them, what you might do to them, you've promised never to let the other person go. So you get that difference so far just between contract and covenant. But now let me just follow up then by asking you a question. Think about your relationship with God. Do you think of that relationship as more of a contract or as more of a covenant? Let me just give you a little diagnostic for how you can tell. If you relate, I'm going to put some things up on the screen here in a minute. If you relate to any of the following, I want to suggest to you that maybe you're actually treating your relationship with God as a contract. So let's just, let's just look at these. See if any of these kind of resonate with you. 
when it comes to your relationship with God, you feel like you're constantly, quote, marketing yourself to God through doing good things. Or maybe you frequently feel uncertainty in your standing with God, particularly when you sin. Or in your head, you know God loves you, but in your heart, you rarely experience that. Or let's talk about obedience. You obey God begrudgingly because you know that you have to earn his acceptance. Or maybe it's the way that you treat other people. You might be inclined to judge people that you think are worse than you so that you can prop yourself up, so you can feel better about you. And then, by the same token, you're insecure about how others see you because you're insecure about how God sees you. Or uh, think about kind of your attitude toward the past. Uh, You know, a contract relationship with God may mean that you're constantly looking over your shoulder at past mistakes and failures, and you're just unable to forgive yourself. Or uh, think about community. You know, you might find that you just really struggle to be honest about, like, what's really going on in your life because you're afraid to let anyone, even God, see the real you. Or just one more. This one kind of about decisions. I'm sure, you know, none of us as young adults can relate to this one. You're terrified of making decisions because you're worried that you're going to disappoint God if you make the wrong one. Interesting. I can relate to that. (laughs) Yeah, ouch is right. One way that you can summarize all of these bullets is with the word striving. A contract relationship with God means that you are always going to be striving to earn his love for you. What would it look like if your relationship with God were actually a marriage covenant? It would mean the end of striving. So in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, there's a famous verse there where God says, Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. And in fact, five times in the original language, it uses words like not or never to convey God's passionate commitment to never abandon us. Uh, you know, or actually, there's an old hymn that kind of riffs off this verse, and it says, That soul, though all hell, should endeavor to shake, I will never, no, never, no, never forsake. This is why it's just so, like, mind-blowingly amazing, you guys, that Christ is the bridegroom. He weds himself to us through a covenant, and that's a pledge to always love us no matter what. And let me just now kind of show you some bullet points of what that kind of relationship feels like. In a covenant relationship, if that's what your relationship with God is like, then it means instead of spending all your time striving you find yourself spending all of your time enjoying God and enjoying his good gifts. You have a deep sense of assurance of belonging to him, even when you sin. God's love is real to your heart. You've experienced his love as a living reality, even though the intensity of that experience might kind of wax and wane just with the ups and downs of life. You know, that's normal. Another one, you obey God joyfully. Your obedience is actually an expression Not of like trying to earn his acceptance, but it's actually gratitude for what he's done for you. Because you love him, you delight in what delights him. Or think about other people. You, instead of judging them, you sympathize with other people that you think are, quote, worse than you. Because you know that you're just as unworthy of God's love as they are. You don't obsess over how other people see you because you know you're loved by the God of the universe. And then when it comes to failures... Failures are simply learning opportunities. They don't have to haunt you. They don't have to stalk you. 
And then community, when it comes to community, you're, you're willing to let other people into your life because even if they reject you, you know that you're still accepted by Jesus. And then last of all, this one on decisions. You know, it's true that decision-making takes wisdom, but it doesn't freak you out because you know that God's going to lovingly guide you and that his acceptance isn't based on what you decide. Isn't the contrast just so staggeringly stark here? <laughs> and it just makes me think of uh, you know, a number of years ago, there was, a, there was a, an opinion piece that was published in a major newspaper. It was by this clinical psychologist. It was called The Downside of Cohabiting Before Marriage. Um, now, we're not going to really talk about that tonight. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. But the article pointed out that there's actually a really strong link between divorce and couples that live together before getting married. And it gave the example of a woman, uh, name given in the article is Jennifer, uh, whose boyfriend lived with her for four years before getting married. And Jennifer said of her experience, quote, I felt like I was on a multi-year, never-ending audition to be his wife. I felt like I was on a multi-year, never-ending audition to be his wife. Some of you may feel that way in your relationship with God. Like your whole life is a multi-year, never-ending audition to be his beloved. I want to tell you the good news tonight, which is that Jesus has not made a business deal with us. Jesus has made a marriage covenant with us, and he will never, no, never, no, never walk out on us. We never have to strive for his love. We never have to strive for his acceptance ever again. God, God cannot love you any more than he already does right now. No more sin, no more striving. And then finally, if there's a wedding at the end of the world, it means no more separation. So notice in Revelation 21 that when God sees the bride, when John sees the bride revealed, he hears a voice from heaven that says, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. I have a very important question uh, to ask the audience tonight. I'm going to use a lifeline. I'm going to phone a friend. Um, here's my very important question. Has anyone here tonight ever been in love? <laughs> Way to see the, the, the almost engaged couple raise their hands. That's great. <laughs> Two almost, that's great. Uh, okay, so some hands, some very eager hands. Man, I'm surprised. Um, you know, just for a moment, if that's you, just, I want you to think about, like, what, what was that experience like, the, the experience of, of falling in love? You know, maybe think about it in terms of your emotions, maybe your actions, maybe your thoughts kind of a fun thing to think about, I guess. You know, unless, you know, not all relationships to start out feeling that way necessarily go that way. But let me just kind of suggest one common element of feeling in love. And that is, when you feel in love with someone, what do you want to do? You want to be with them. You want to, you know, you want to be with them no matter what that looks like. You know, you can be with them at a romantic dinner. You can be staring into each other's eyes, just oogling at each other, you know. Don't raise your hand if you've done that. You know, it's <laughs> got to keep this PG-13, you guys. You know, you can, you can be with them at a romantic dinner. You can be with them just like standing at the kitchen sink and you're just like talking softly while one of you washes and one of you dries, you know. It doesn't really matter what it is you're doing because you're enamored with the other person. All that matters is that you just want to be with them. The book of Revelation tells us that one day God is going to wed himself to his people and from that day onward, 
His people will always be with him. There will be no more separation. There will no longer be any barrier between us and him and the full experience of his love. Here's how Jonathan Edwards, the great American theologian, once once put it. And I've kind of edited this just to make it a little more readable once again. There in heaven, this fountain of love, this eternal three-in-one, is set open without any obstacle to hinder access to it. This glorious God is manifested and shines forth in full glory in beams of love. There the fountain overflows in streams and rivers of love and delight, enough for all to drink at and to swim in and even to overflow the world as it were with a deluge of love. It's actually from a sermon of his called Heaven is a World of Love. And just think about what every great movie, every great book, every great you know, pop song, what do they all have in common? <laughs> what they all have in common is that they all tell you that the deepest longing at the core of every single one of our souls is the longing to be loved. We are all love-based creatures. It means that we're made to love, we're made to be loved, and one day at the wedding, at the end of the world, we're promised that we will finally experience perfect love in all of its fullness. Perfect love in all of its fullness. Now, I mean, granted, all of us know that like right now, <laughs> our lives don't necessarily feel that way. And they might actually not fully feel that fullness of love, even if you're a believer. Even if you do believe in Jesus. I mean, life is hard. Uh, it's easy to screw up. It's very easy to kind of actually feel separation from God. We're, we're sometimes more in touch with our sin and our striving than, the, than the, the, the tender, gentle, merciful love that Jesus offers. And so in those times, you know, even if you so far tonight have agreed kind of intellectually with everything that I've said, it's easy to lose sight of the shore. It's easy to lose sight of the shore and to want to just give up anyway. Because after all, you know, this is the wedding at the end of the world. You know, like what if in between like now and the end of the world, you know, like what if I lose my salvation? What if I deconstruct my faith? You know, can't I still screw up so badly between now and then that I, I give in to sin? And, and I disqualify myself from the wedding day. Maybe you've kind of asked yourself those questions before, you know, questions about how can you really know that your salvation is assured? And these questions are super real. They're super personal. And they can leave you actually, in the end, kind of feeling a whole lot more swallowed up by your mistakes than by the gentleness and the kindness of Jesus. I just want you to know, like, that kind of confusion is not God's will for you. It says in Scripture, he's not a God of confusion, but of peace. And so I just want to conclude tonight by asking the question, is there an assurance that we will make it to the wedding? Is there an assurance that we will make it to the wedding? There is. And his name starts with a J. (laughs) Uh, Think about marriage again, just kind of human marriage. Think about marriage actually today, right now, in our culture. Uh, Today in our culture right now, uh, when two people get married, what what do they do? Well, first they, they, you know, they they date for a while, they get engaged, and then finally, a few months later, they tie the knot. You know, but of course, the problem with that, that approach is that we all know that it doesn't necessarily go that way. It doesn't always go that way. Like, you know, maybe you've heard of what's called a broken engagement. There's actually no airtight guarantee that you will make it to the altar uh, just because someone pops you the question. Uh, Because in our culture, you're only married on 
the wedding day. So far, so good. But in biblical times, it was not that way. It was different. I mean, in Bible times, the way it worked was that a Jewish man would travel to the home of his bride-to-be, and he would negotiate with her father the price that he would pay to marry her. And once this payment had been made, the marriage covenant was considered established, and they were seen as husband and wife. But they wouldn't consummate the marriage. They actually wouldn't even live together. Instead, the husband would return to his father's house, and they would be separated for about 12 months while the husband prepared a place for him and his bride. And during that time, the bride was to prepare herself for her husband to come and take her to be with him. Then, at a time that was unannounced beforehand, the bridegroom would come. He would arrive to fetch his bride and take her to his father's house, where the wedding guests would all be assembled. They would then be escorted into a private bridal chamber, where they would consummate the marriage that had been covenanted a year beforehand. And after that, there would be a great feast. So you can kind of see the difference. In our culture, you're only married on the wedding day, but in that culture, you were actually married on the day the price was paid. Let me just really quick throw this up if anyone wants to just take a look or snapshot this. This is just sort of a breakdown of what I just said there. But the main difference, if you just don't remember anything, just remember that the key difference between then and now. In our culture, you're married on the wedding day. In that culture, you're actually married on the day the price was paid. When Jesus died on the cross, he was not simply popping the question. It wasn't simply a proposal. He wasn't just proposing, hey, how would you feel about this, you know, you and me thing? If he had, then sometimes during the long engagement, then, you know, couldn't he have just gotten sick of us every time we sinned? Couldn't he have just decided sometime in the engagement just to call the whole thing off? No. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid the price. And it was a price that was so astronomical. I mean, it was so outrageous and reckless and infinite that it, goes, that it proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that he will never, no, never, no, never let us go. Jesus has already sealed the marriage. We already belong to him. And because we belong to him, yes, you know, there's still sin in the world. But we don't have to bow to it anymore. We don't have to strive anymore because we've been given right here, right now, a foretaste of the great banquet that's to come. And do you see what this means? Do you see what this means? It means that no amount of sin, no amount of failure, no amount of, of anything that you do can break God's marriage covenant because it doesn't depend on you. You know, what did you have to do if you were the bride? You just, it wasn't even... It wasn't even something you had to do. Your sin doesn't seal the marriage payment. The payment sealed the marriage payment. The price is the bridegroom's price that he paid. He paid it in full. And one day, on a day and an hour that we don't know, Jesus will return to take his bride to his father's house. Not to marry his people, because that's already happened, but to experience the fullness of the union that he paid the price to secure and that means that just like the bride, our job is to be watching and to be preparing ourselves for the day that he returns. And so tonight, if you're a believer and you're not married to another human, <laughs> and even if you never get married, if all of this is true, then you don't have to despair because in a sense, obviously not like a literal sense, but you know, a real sense nonetheless, you already are. 
And one day, when the bridegroom returns, you'll get to experience the fullness of the one great relationship for which all of us are made. You'll fall into his arms. You'll know a joy that words can't express. And from that time on and forever, you will be with the one who has loved you with an everlasting love. Let me pray. Father, thank you that our story ends this way. Thank you that you have prepared a wedding at the end of the world. And Father, thank you that even long before we were ready for it, even long before we had done anything to merit it, Father, that you paid the price, you covenanted the marriage, and that our future, our security, our identity is completely 200% secure. Help us to rest in that. In Jesus' name, amen.